through the book of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, last few weeks, and you just finished with Mark chapter 12, something like that? Right. Yeah, and, I, and you probably have noticed one of the main questions that come over and over again in the book of the Gospel of Mark is the question, who is this Jesus? And his disciples asked this, the Pharisees asked this, the people around him asked this. And I'm sure that for most of us today, whether you're Christian or not, you're here because you're asking the same question, who is this Jesus? So I want to look at this question from a different place, a somewhat unlikely place. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 19. You may be familiar with the psalm, but we will talk about Jesus through the psalm, Psalm 19. So as you turn there, let me pray for us. Speak to us today, Lord, in your power and mercy. Shine your light in us and give us understanding and eyes to see and ears to hear your word and good news. Teach us to worship as we have been created to do. We lift our prayers to you in your son's name. Amen. Please read with me together Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precept of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back the servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of grave transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's the word of the Lord. Well, about a year ago, I saw an article from on Facebook that NASA took the electromagnetic waves of you know the stars and the planets and converted them into sands. Well, if you're a scientist, you know this much more than I do, but I find it fascinating. If you're actually listening to it, listen to it on NASA's website. One of my um, you know, friends saw the same article and he posted it on Facebook and it's fascinating to both of us because you know, we think of the space such as vacuum, empty, dark vacuum out there, but it's actually creating a symphony that 
we're not aware of. So my friend posted on Facebook and he added the caption, the heavens declare the glory of God, which is such appropriate description of this beautiful scientific discovery. And it comes from Psalm 19, our text from this morning. But as you see, the psalm we have is not just a praise about God as a powerful creator, it also praise Him as the holy lawgiver, and finally, as a rock and redeemer. So let's look at it together. The first, God is the powerful creator. You know, from the very beginning of the psalm, David tells us that creation reflects the power of God. And as Christians, we believe that God is the answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? When we look at the stars at night, or the brilliance of the sun, or the beauty of nature, or just think of the, the little snow we got this winter. <laughs> you know, creation testifies to the power of God and the, as the creator and sustainer. You know, David compares the joy of the sun as it travels across the sky to the bridegroom leaving his wedding chamber, radi radiating brilliance and joy over all the earth. You know, we all know how gloomy it gets in the winter. Not only that because it's cold, but also because there's less light. Nothing gives us more joy than seeing the sun waking us up in the morning, right? Announcing the beginning of a new day. But even the brilliance of the sun is just a shadow of God's glory. In the opening paragraph, the Bible tells us that God is the creator of light. This all comes from Him. And the sun and moon and the stars also reflect God's power to sustain and regulate time and seasons. You know, the changes in time and seasons are precisely marked by the changes in sky, even by the way we set our clock, springing forward because we correspond to this. But the changes in times and season also reflect that the praising of God is nonstop. In the verse 2 it says, Day to day pours out our speech, night to night reveals knowledge. But the praise is not just endless in time, it's without geographic boundaries. Creation testified to the power of our Creator throughout all the world. Verse 4 says, the, the voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. The beauty of the heavens and the brilliance of the sun is a universal language that all nations, tribes, and tongues can understand. As Paul writes in Romans 1.20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made that both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, God's power has been on clear display throughout all creations. His power and glory are plain for our eyes. And the question is, do we have eyes to see it? You know, in the 1961, Soviet astronaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human to fly out of space, and which immediately became an international sensation. 
And after he came back, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union back then, he famously said this. Gagarin flew into space, but didn't see any god up there. Now, depending whether he has eyes to see them, we could actually argue that he saw many signs of God up there. But it's not just atheists or non-religious people like Khrushchev who refuse to acknowledge God. The religious people do the same thing. You know, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you know, people were lining up on the road rejoicing and praising God and singing Hosanna. But who are the folks that were most indignant and annoyed by this whole thing? Not the atheists, not the Gentiles, the religious people, the Pharisees who wanted to protect their status and traditions. They wanted Jesus to stop all this nonsense. What did Jesus say? Jesus responds in Luke 19. Now I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And that's kind of the most tragic and shameful thing of all, that we, the humans, are the pinnacle of God's creation. And out of everything that was created, only we bear the image of God. You know, if anything, we should be the one leading the symphony of praise, but not only that we refuse to praise Him, but turn away from Him. You know, listen to this quote from um, Karl Barth, that's actually page, I think, five of the bulletin. It says, all creation praise God, even the smallest creature do, do it. They do it with, along with us or without us. They do it also against us to shame us and instruct us. They do it because they cannot help doing it. When man accepts again his destiny in Jesus Christ, he is only like a latecomer slipping, slipping shamefully into creation's choir in heaven and earth, which has never ceased its praise, but merely suffered and sighed. As it still does, that it, in inconceivably folly, and ingratitude, its living center, man, refuses to cooperate in the tribulation which surrounds him. Listens to that. And even a shrub praises God better than we do because it's being what it's created to be. But we are still dragging our feet to join in. Does that cut to your heart? So if you're not sure whether God exists, if you deny that there's a God at all, the next time you see something beautiful that completely takes your breath away, you know, in fusion with all, I hope you would consider whether it points to something transcendent, or if you're willing to settle and accept that everything is just a natural coincidence. You know, G.K. Chesterton, one said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. And perhaps the next time your heart is filled with gratitude for the beauty of nature, it will be the beginning of your encounter with the God who created it all. And creation testifies to the power of God. is the powerful creator that's my first point, but then the psalm takes on a strange turn. 
But David begins to praise God's law. Now, how many of your kids have come up to you and say, Mom or Dad, will you please give me more rules to follow? You know, how many of you have come up to Pastor Lee and say, Pastor, I just love your rules. But that's exactly what David's doing here. And what's going on? Well, this gets to the center of who God is. God is a powerful creator, but more importantly, he is the holy lawgiver. You know, I know it's tempting to want a God that does not make any absolute moral claims, or a God that just, you know, we think God's law is too rigid, outdated, intolerant. You know, we want a God that's more accepting and loving, a God that it's not holy. But a God that's not holy, who makes no absolute moral claims, is actually not a God worthy to be praised at all. You know, Jonathan Edwards, our great Puritan father, divided God's attributes into two categories. You know, there's the natural greatness of God, which includes God's power, His knowledge, His omnipresence, His majesty, His eternity. And there's God's moral perfection, which makes him righteous, just, and faithful. And this moral perfection, Jonathan Edwards, defines it as holiness. And essentially, Jonathan Edwards argues that natural attributes like power and knowledge without holiness is actually not good at all. Because power and wealth and even beauty used for evil. Many of you know the legendary songwriter, Justin Bieber. <laughs> well, he is young, rich, handsome, and some may even say he is talented. But he's always getting into trouble because of the lack of strong moral convictions, right? Or a more extreme example is Adolf Hitler. The Nazis. They were disciplined and mighty, and Hitler was a stirring speaker, incredibly eloquent. But they used all their power and resources for some of the most monstrous evil in the history of human power. And we need moral fibers to sustain goodness. And like Uncle Ben says in the first Spider Man movie, which is just 15 years ago. It's a long time. And great power comes with great responsibility. And great power must be guided toward a just and righteous end. And that's why in this psalm, David praises God not just, just for his power, but declares an admiration for God's law. And if you look through the psalms, there are just as many, if not more, appeals to God's justice justice and holiness as adoration for God's power. The longest of the Psalms, Psalm 119, is a long praise of God's laws because the law of God reflects God's holiness. And what makes God worthy of worship is not simply because He's strong and powerful, but because He uses power for justice, for good. And whatever God does is right. If you've been wrong, or if you're wondering whether 
God has abandoned you, you're not alone. You join the prayers of the Psalms to appeal to God's justice and holiness. So he will not let evil go unpunished. But he also has this reason to withhold his wrath until the right moment. And if you're someone invested with power, whether that's economic or relational power at home, at work, or in society, and think carefully how you're using the power that God has best in you. Are you using it for righteousness or justice? If you're feeling a righteous anger for the injustice you see, then keep fighting. Because your fight for righteousness and justice will never be a losing fight. All this should also make us consider why do we love God? And do, do we love Him because we like having God on our side? Do we love Him for His power, for the benefits and the mighty things He does in our lives, for the national parks? I mean, these are good things, we should be thankful for them, but do we really love God for who He is, for His holiness? And unless we learn to love God for His holiness and righteousness, we don't love God at all because we're just using God to get to something else. And we're just a little tool in our hands to get to some other idols. If we were created to lead the symphony of praise in all of creation, then God, in all His holiness, cannot be anything less than the center of our love. And to repent and to grow as a disciple of Jesus must include reorienting the center of our affection toward Him. So what does it look like to love God for His holiness? Well, David teaches here that it means rejoicing in God's laws and testimonies. And David says, the laws of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. But God's revelation transforms our souls and emotions, our intellects, even our physical bodies. We delight in God. Through reading his word. There are more to be desired than fine gold. God's testimony is more valuable than earthly treasures. It's sweeter than honey. It's better than any earthly pleasures you ever have. You know, one of my greatest memories when I was living in DC is going through the Smithsonian's. There's a special exhibit, just a room full of displays from medieval times. Of scraps of papers and work branches, benches, and pieces of wood that's you know, thousands of years old. And it's very simple, but they just have inscription of God's word on them. And of course, back in medieval times, before printing press, not everyone has the Bible at their home. And that's what makes these little items scraps of papers and work benches so special because people keep them as almost relics of the home because they have the word of God in them. That's the only possession of God's word at the home. The word of God, the testimony, is more just to be the 
desire and find gold. And God is the powerful creator. He is the holy lawgiver. As we approach something powerful and holy, we run into a problem. We begin to see our own deficiencies. This takes me to my last point. You know, I played the violin growing up, and I used to, when I was in high school, I played for several seasons in the Cincinnati Symphony Youth Orchestra. Now, I was good enough to get in, but not exactly good enough to play in it. <laughs> so, every week at rehearsal, um, I would play as softly as I could and follow what everyone else was doing. And hopefully, no one would notice my mistake. And usually, I could get by. But every year in the spring, we would have a joint concert with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. So we get to take the day off school, go down to play in the Cincinnati Music Hall. And um, there was a free lunch after the concert. It's usually a really great day. <laughs> and um, except that there were some of the most nerve-wracking experiences I would ever have. Because I will be sitting side by side with members of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, and these people have been playing the violin for a living longer than I've been alive. And I know that as soon as I started playing, they would know that I was making all kinds of mistakes. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus miraculously helped Peter catch a boatload of fish. And Peter, maybe for the first time, recognizing who Jesus really is. What does he do? Luke says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down, and Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When we approach something perfect and holy, we begin to recognize our own sinfulness. A quick reading through the law of God should convince us that it's too much for us to bear. Yet for some reason, a murderer, an adulterer like David, still declares his love for God's law. When Jesus says, comes to uphold the law, yet sinners continue to flock to him. Why? Because the law was given in the context of God's redeeming love. You know what we have? From God, it's more than just a set of rules and regulations. And these endless and even boring sections of law, and you know, they're embedded deep in the narrative of God's rescue of His people from slavery in Egypt. And these laws were part of God's covenant with Israel as it leads them to the Promised Land. You know, when David refers to the law of God in the psalm, he doesn't just refer to him as some abstract deity out there. He calls him the Lord. And when we know the, the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, it's the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. He is a God that draws near to his people and reveals himself to them. He is a God who redeems. And David recognizes that we are never saved by our ability to fulfill the law, but only by the redeeming love of God. That's why David does not end Psalm 19 with the boast of his ability to do the law, 
He ends with a prayer for mercy and protection. And that's just the prayer he gets. In this prayer, he gets even more personal with God. He addresses the Lord as my rock, my redeemer. It's not something asking for protection from evil, but protection from himself. In verse 12, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back the servant from presumptuous sins. And who can understand the depths of our own sins? Who can, you know, we need forgiveness not only for the big sins that are obvious to everybody, but for all the hidden secret sins that we're too proud to see. For the darkest spot in our hearts that we don't even dare to touch. As the Apostle writes, Apostle Paul writes in Romans 7, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now I need help. Who can help me? And there's something even more scary, even scarier. And David recognized that in order for him to be acceptable before God, he has to be declared innocent and righteous. But if God is truly just and holy, he won't let sinners go unpunished. As the pastor used to say, if God is not absolutely just and righteous, there's no hope. If God is just and righteous, what hope is there for you? If God is not absolutely just and righteous, there's no hope. If God is absolutely just and righteous, what hope is there for you? That's where the song and the gospel of Mark intersects. And then the hope is in Jesus. And the powerful creator in the psalm took on the form of the created, coming into creation in the form of a helpless baby. And the holy lawgiver came under the law, filled the law on our behalf. And he took on the punishment that we deserve. Therefore, you know, the Apostle Paul describes God as just and the justifier of sinners because in his death, Jesus fulfills the demands of justice for our punishment and his blood justifies us by making us blameless and righteous before God. You know, God upholds his holiness and justice to such an extent that even his own son cannot escape it. His own son took on the punishment so that we do not have to. So, my friends, worship God as the powerful creator. Love him as the holy lawgiver, but most importantly, embrace him as the loving redeemer. And if the power of God makes you stand in awe of him, if his holiness makes you tremble before him, then let his Grace and peace make you fall in love with Him. And if you know how to do this, if you're not sure how to do this, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. you know, don't read through the Psalms and let them guide your prayers. And don't do this just on your own, but do this in community. And if you have a, if you already embrace Him as the Redeemer, then worship Him. Go out and join the creation in the symphony of praise.
worship Him in your work, in your service to your neighbors, in your pursuit of justice and mercy. And for you back God's image in all the places He has called you to be. And tell others about His power, His holiness, and His love. Let's pray.